Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. From helping with diabetes-related problems to toenail issues, podiatrists are looking for ways to make sure you can keep moving. Podiatry, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your Prairie Doc host this evening. Tonight's episode is part of our 22nd season, providing health information based on science, built on trust. We continue to provide trusted health information this evening as we discuss podiatry. Joining us to address this topic is Dr. Ryan Prusa and Dr. Nephi Jones from the Vera Orthopedics Brookings. Welcome and thank you for joining us today in the studio here in Brookings. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Prusa. Yeah, um, uh, so I'm originally from Iowa. Um, I did my undergrad there, and then I went to uh, podiatric medical school at Des Moines University and did residency in Des Moines as well. Um, and then I ended up up here in um, Brookings, South Dakota, where I work at Avera Orthopedics as a, a podiatrist. All right. How long have you been up here in Brookings? Um, so it's been a little over a year now. So I started in September of 2022. All right, excellent. As a fellow Des Moines University graduate, yes. excellent school. Yeah, purple and proud. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, Dr. Jones, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to Brookings. Yes. Um, well, early career, I started as a uh, paramedic and a police officer, and then I went back to school. I went to school in uh, Chicago at uh, Dr. William M. Scholl College of Podiatric Medicine. After that, I went to residency in Des Moines with uh, Dr. Prusha. He was um, a year behind me in, in residency. Um, following that, I uh, took the position up here with Avera at Brookings, and I've been here for about three years. Um, we treat all sorts of, of different pathology of the of the foot and ankle, which we'll get into later tonight. All right. And you liked it so much, you called up your buddy and said, hey. I did. <laughs> come on said, up and join. I said, I need help up here. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's do this. Excellent. All right. Well, I think this is going to be a very fun topic, lots of stuff to talk about here. So. But before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about podiatry. Viewers can contact us in three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible, given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for our newest Prairie Doc publication. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information if you would like to be entered for the prize. So let's get to viewer questions here. Uh, first one, why do I have cold feet? Um, please answer for, for me personally. <laughs> and uh, so my husband doesn't have to deal with my cold feet every <laughs> yes. night. I, uh, I'll start off with, everybody's different. 
and so it's, it's really hard to say why do you have cold feet. Um, for some people, it's just normal. Um, their, their anatomy, they, they have normal blood flow, but their skin temperature regulation is just always cool. Um, obviously, the temperature outside can dictate um, vasoconstriction of the blood vessels, which, which uh, makes our feet cold. Um, for some people, if it's a new problem and it's painful, that could indicate uh, a vascular disease. Um, but so it's it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly why your feet are cold. If they've always been cold, then it's it's just something probably as uh, your temperature regulation in your feet is is not going to change. <laughs> Yeah, I, I always say my feet have very low R-value insulation. <laughs> yes, so, yes. They're always cold. My hands are always cold. I apologize to patients <laughs> constantly. So, but not bad circulation, which is what I'm I think not. a common thing that we hear a lot of people say, yes. oh, it has to be bad circulation. Yes. which more than likely it's not. It's mm -hmm. usually just, you know, our nerves, they, they do temperature regulation. Um, naturally, you know, heat escapes from different areas of the body. Um, but generally it is not a vascular issue for most people. Now, if you have diabetes or you're a smoker, you have um, history of blood clotting diseases, then maybe, but usually if it's always a complication, my feet are always cold, um, it's usually just genetics and, and, and something to live with. All right. Put on warm socks. Any recommendations about, yeah, what we do, warm socks? Yeah, or? Some nice wool socks. Um, or I, I had a patient in the other day that told me he was wearing alpaca socks and okay. he really liked the warmth that those gave him. So I um, bet those are a lot softer than wool. Yep. can get a little scratchy. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, a good, good pair of socks. Um, just to keep keep the feet warm and um, winter boots as well in those colder months. So. Yes, I, I keep asking my husband for there's battery operated ones that will heat up and I want yes. a pair badly. So maybe someday. Yeah. <laughs> those aren't for everybody. <laughs> Some people who have neuropathy. We, that would be bad. We, yes, because you never know um, if they get a cheaper brand mm. and, it, and it becomes malfunctioning and it causes a burn. Mm. That could be it's unsafe. But yes, yes. Excellent. So, so you do have to be careful. You do have that, to be careful yeah, with, I've seen with a those lot of electric people, socks. I've seen people burn themselves with heating pads and yeah. things that you or, think are, are easy and safe and over the counter, but yep. Yeah, or even those those uh, hand warmers. Oh yes. Uh, I've seen people burn themselves with that because they use too many at, mm. at one time and they put them directly on the skin. I think even it says don't put directly on the skin. So you got to be careful with those things as well. Okay, sounds good. Well, um, let's get this out of the way. What do podiatrists do and what exactly do you guys treat? So we can help guide the questions here. Yeah, so um, really it kind of depends on locality, um, depending on the scope of practice, but um, we really treat anything on the foot or ankle um, or any soft tissue structure that inserts onto the foot or ankle. So um, our scope is pretty broad here in South Dakota with um, any kind of, of foot condition you have from anything from a simple hammer toe, um, calluses, things like that, all the way up to traumatic injuries like ankle fractures we can treat. Okay. Well, on the radio show, a viewer called in and asked about the difference between a corn and a callus, and I want to make sure I gave him the right answer. <laughs> so can you expound? <laughs> I have my own opinion on, on corn and calluses. Um, for a true, like, corn, um, it should be like interdigital. It's caused by two bone, bony structures rubbing on each other. So like in between the toes, you have two bones that are creating this callus, which a corn is a callus, um, but it's because of a bony structure where 
a callus, if you get one on the bottom of your foot, it's usually um, your foot from an external structure causing the friction developing the callus. Um, that's, that's my take on it. That's how I distinguish the mm -hmm. two, corn and callus. On the bottom line, they're both a callus that, that need to be trimmed down or, or treated. Um, but Dr. Prusha disagrees. <laughs> well, I'll let him argue <laughs> that. <laughs> I think it's semantics. So, okay. yeah. But either way, yeah, it's it's a, a buildup of that hyperkeratotic or extra skin tissue okay. that, that forms the callus or, or corn. All right. So, what do you do to treat those? I know there's a lot of different things you can get over the counter. Is there something that works better? You talked about trimming. Is should people be hacking away at their feet, or should they leave it to a professional? Generally, they should leave it to us. Yes. I mean, it can be pretty dangerous for some people, especially the, the types of people that we see and treat mm -hmm. and treat their corns and calluses. Um, limited mobility, they can't quite see, they can cause injury, which can lead to infection, which could lead to amputation if not, not treated properly. Um, there are many different over-the-counter topical medications for corns, but at the same time, I don't recommend those usually because if you leave it on too long, the skin gets really macerated, you can start to develop a wound. And so I don't like over-the-counter topical medications. The best thing is if you can't trim it and can't get it to us to trim it, is find some way to pad that area, whether it's with some felt, some moleskin, a cotton ball, something like that, um, to just, especially if it's in between the toes, to keep those structures from rubbing on each other and causing pain. Um, there's different surgical ways to, to fix to fix corns or calluses depending on the location as well. Um. Yeah, I would agree. I think really um, as long as people are using like an emery board or mm -hmm. um, a pumice stone where they're not mm -hmm. going to be actually cutting the tissue, okay. more of just kind of scraping it off, that that's kind of where I say they can do that at home. But so the metal ones that look more like cheese graters <laughs> are probably a little too aggressive? They can be aggressive, yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, and then of course we have the the uh, farmers that'll come in and say they just took a single edge razor blade to it, and <laughs> but um, yeah, best to leave that, that to leave guys. that us to, uh, up to us to take care of that stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're in a better position to see it, better lighting. It's yeah. really hard to work on your own foot or even and someone you know, else's. And, and you got to know what level of tissue to get down to. You don't want to get too deep because then you develop a wound. Now we have to try to fix the wound, and so yeah, it's best to leave it to, to somebody like us to do. Mm -hmm. All right, and I know at our hospital here we have the foot clinic. Now, what? That's usually nurses. What do they do, and when are they appropriate? Yes. So, um, for most insurances to cover a visit with us, um, it has to be painful. If your calluses and corns aren't painful, they're just kind of irritating. Um, or if you don't have other qualifying factors, we do have a, uh, a certified nurse at the hospital that does foot care. She does nail trimmings, she'll do the callus care, she'll trim down the calluses and things. Um, so for some people who don't have qualifications to have insurance paid for us to do it, she's a good resource for us as well. Okay, and how does someone schedule with her or get onto that? Um, they can call the, the clinic and and ask for the nail clinic. I think it's every Tuesday, I think, now. Okay, so they, they deal with kind of trimming those corns, calluses. What about toenails? I know a lot of people have a hard time getting down yep. to... Yep, they cover the toenails. They do it. She mm -hmm. does it all. She's wonderful. 
Yep. Yeah, she's a really good resource for us because um, sometimes people will come in with painful calluses or toenails and then we can do that initial treatment, but we'd also like to prevent that problem from coming back. So okay. she's a good resource for more um, routine, like maintaining mm -hmm. um, the trimming of the, the calluses or toenails so that they don't become a bigger issue. Okay. So, and are certain patients more at risk for developing problems on the bottom of their feet or who would benefit from a little closer yeah absolutely so um, our diabetic patients are ones that we definitely watch really close um, because commonly associated with diabetes is peripheral neuropathy um, or reduced sensation in the feet so um, that's where a normal person might have that painful callus and then they know they need to seek some kind of treatment but for those diabetic patients they can't feel that pain so it can lead to um, more complications or wounds or things like that. Okay, so talking about neuropathy, kind of that foot numbness, pain, tingling, is it just from diabetes or can you get that from other? You can use that, you can definitely get it from other things. Um, so you can get it from diabetes, you can get it from alcohol abuse, you can get it from medications such as chemotherapy, and also there's, there's idiopathic neuropathy, which means we're idiots Something. and we don't know what caused it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, so there are many different types of neuropathy um, and certain types can be painful and other times it's just numbness. And so. Okay. so lots of nerves in the feet, I mean, kind of like your hands. I mean, there's a lot of sensing and I know those nerves are really important for your proprioception or kind of standing because I've had a lot of yes. people say, oh, I have a trouble walking or I'm tripping <clears throat> or falling. I mean, how can you guys help with that uh, to prevent some of those falls? Because some people, I think they literally just don't feel the ground under their feet and Correct. then Correct. we end up in the hospital with a broken hip. Yes, yes. So a lot of times I'll send my patients that have those early signs of proprioceptive loss, they, they lose that vibratory sensation. Um, I'll send them to physical therapy and have the physical therapist start working on, on gait training and trying to gain some of that proprioception back. Once we have nerve damage though, we can't really get that nerve back per se, especially um, if it's from long-standing untreated diabetes. Um, we can't get those nerves back, but we can train our body with the physical therapist to be able to walk more normal and, pr okay. and prevent those falls. Uh, some people have to start using a cane or a walker or something um, as well. All right, excellent. Well, lots of your questions are coming in here. Um, what causes discolored nails? Yeah, so um, that can be a few different things. Um, typically, the most common thing we see is, is toenail fungus, um, which is super common. It's everywhere in our environment, so it's really easy to pick up and get into your toenails. Um, unfortunately, it's a much more difficult um, battle to get rid of that toenail fungus. Um, but we do have some treatment options available. Um, so if you do start seeing some of those early changes, it might be a good idea to, to see somebody and, and see if there's a medication that we can help with that before you get substantial changes. All right, so what would be the first signs or changes that you guys would notice with? With toenail fungus? With toenail fungus, yeah. Um, if you can catch it early, depending on the type, because there's different types of toenail fungus, you can have superficial white onychomycosis, which is the fancy word for toenail fungus. And so it might be a, a white layer on top of the nail that you can kind of scrape off. Um, a lot of times it may be just yellowing. Um, those are the times to really catch that because um, they respond better to treatment, where 
long-standing toenail fungus, the nail gets really thick. It starts to become brittle. When you try to trim it, it just kind of crumbles like a, mm. a cookie. That um, At that point, it's kind of like end-stage toenail fungus where there's not really any good treatments for that. Um, so it kind of depends on catching it early. There's different coloration, so it's maybe yellow or white. Um, those are the times if we want to try to treat it, and we, we want to see it then. Um, to get the best chance um, to, to get rid of the toenail fungus. All right, sounds good. Well, another caller asked, what is a hammer toe? What causes it? Yeah, so a hammer toe is, is a contraction of one of the lesser digits of the foot. Um, and there's a few different causes, but the, really the most common cause is um, as we're on our feet walking a lot, um, a lot of people will wear shoes, which kind of weakens the musculature of the, the foot, the muscles inside of the foot. Um, and they're often overpowered by the more powerful muscles of the lower leg. And when that happens, it, it gets the biomechanics of the toe kind of out of, out of whack, and that's what causes that contracture or hammering of the toe. Okay. Very interesting. Well, when your feet hurt, it limits all types of activities. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke with a pedorthodist about foot orthotics and how they can make moving enjoyable again. Sean Nessum is a certified pedorthist at Orthotic and Prosthetic Specialties in Sioux Falls, and his job is to make sure his clients' shoes fit comfortably through foot orthotics. Um, a foot orthotic is a device that would support and correct alignment in the foot and ankle. Foot orthotics are for anyone who has trouble with feet pain and finding the right pair of shoes. Orthotics can be made to relieve pressure like a callus on the foot, or they can be made to correct problems like flat feet. If someone is flat-footed and rolling in or supinated rolling out, the orthosis will correct that alignment. How Nessum starts building foot orthotics is with a scan of the foot to find the trouble spots and how to relieve that pain. We have software where then we can then take that 3D data, manipulate it, and design the orthotic. Then from there we take that file and we have a CNC machine that will carve out whatever density material we want to build that out of. Once the orthotic is carved out, a cushion is put over the top and they're ready to be used. Nessum says the fabricating takes about two weeks and they last for a couple years. I give most of the devices about two years. Uh, if we get into more of the rigid plastics, four years, sometimes a little longer. But I usually typically figure about two years on the softer foams and that sort of thing. Once those years run out, Nessum says a new scan isn't always needed if nothing has changed in two years. He also says he makes foot orthotics for everyone, from athletes to children. I would say we do see everyone from children who are just beginning to walk, who maybe have some mobility issues or muscle weakness that we're working with, all the way to, you know, people with diabetes who have insensate feet and open wounds. Nessum ends with saying that his business is a board-certified facility which requires a physician's referral for his custom-built foot orthotics. If someone has pain in their feet, Nessum says getting their feet examined is worth walking comfortably again. I would say if you're having pain, discomfort when walking and doing your daily activities, that's a good, good reason for it. 
does having fallen arches and flat feet hurt the feet and ankles? I know I'm always being asked about that when I'm doing uh, ROTC physicals about flat arches. Yes, yes. As we look at the foot structure, as the foot starts to flatten out or roll out, it changes the ground reactive forces, how we, where those forces are coming from. It also changes how our tendons that are attaching into our foot from our leg are pulling, what direction are they pulling. As things flatten out and as our tendons stretch out, you can start getting pain in those different regions. As it becomes progressively worse, we can actually see the ankle start to, to, to roll in as well. Um, we call that a valgus ankle deformity. So as the foot goes out, then now the ankle starts to go. Um, it can have a lot of effects on, on people as it worsens to where when you see them walking, it looks like they're walking on the sides of their ankles. And you think, wow, that has to hurt. It has to be painful. Um, so we try to catch flat foot deformities before they reach those kind of end stage deformities because that, that's where surgery is really the only option to fix that. Um, but as the foot flattens out, things don't work like they're designed to when we're younger. And so it's important to try to control that flattening to prevent problems going down the road. All right, excellent. Well, a caller is asking uh, about plantar fasciitis. They were diagnosed with it. What can they do to help with the pain? Yeah, great question. Um, so plantar fasciitis is definitely something we see a lot of in the clinic. Um, and really it's people present with pain on the bottom of the heel. Um, it's really painful with first steps out of bed in the morning and then after a lot of activity. So um, essentially what happens is the plantar fascia is a connective tissue structure on the bottom of the foot. And as that gets overloaded, it pulls really hard on its attachment on the heel bone, which causes a bunch of inflammation and that's where that pain comes from. Um, so kind of some, some starting things people can do is a good pair of shoes and, and supportive orthotics um, that have that medial arch support that can take some of that stress and strain off of the plantar fascia. Um, another thing that's important is actually um, stretching of the calf muscles um, because that tightness can lead to overloading of that plantar fascia as well. So as much calf stretching as they can do, the better. Um, and then little, um, a few over-the-counter like anti-inflammatory medications can also help to, to kind of calm that stuff down. So, um, and if it doesn't get better with those simple things, then that's probably when it's time to see, to see somebody and, and we can work it up a little further. All right. Well, another speaking of pain on the bottom of the foot, uh, caller is asking about Morton's neuroma. What is it and how is it treated? Morton's neuroma, um, they can be a booger to treat. It's a, basically an inflammation of one of the uh, plantar digital nerves that, that travels on the bottom of the foot out to the toes, where it transverses um, from one, one nerve into two out to the, the toes is where it generally gets inflamed and becomes bulbous. Um, it swells in that space, and then standing and walking, those bones pushing on it causes a lot of pain out into the toes. Um, treatments. There's different types of orthotic modifications that we can put in your, sh in your shoe to try to separate those bones to take the pressure off the nerve. Um, there's injections that we do to try to reduce the inflammation around the nerve to, to get that swelling down. Um, Anti-inflammatory pain medication. And then lastly, there's surgery. 
um, with any type of surgery, there, there's no guarantee that won't cause new problems or worsening um, nerve pain because it is nerves. Nerves kind of do their own thing sometimes. Um, when you cut a nerve, it wants to regenerate and then you can develop um, a, a, the stump neuroma where the end of that where you just cut just kind of swells up and now you have that same pain mm. but it's further back in the foot. And so they can be very, very tricky. So we try to steer clear of surgical uh, treatments and, and do things that, that can um, alleviate their pain w without surgery. All right. Well, speaking of non-surgical treatments, is there anything for bone spurs? Depends, depends on where it's at. You can okay. basically develop a bone spur anywhere, a tendon, a ligaments attaching, or around a joint. Um, and depends on what type of bone spur there is. Um, typically, people talk about bone spur, spurs on the heel or on the back where the Achilles tendon is. Um, a lot of times, it's, it's shoe, shoe gear modification. Is there different padding we can use? Um, is it the shoe type that we're wearing? Are we wearing very narrowed shoes? It's pushing on that area. Um, mostly it's taking the pressure away from where that spur is at. If we can re remove the pain uh, or the pressure, then, 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 then the, pain we can, the pain goes away. All right. And, Excellent. So uh, another caller asked, how long does it take for broken bones to heal and stop hurting? I'm assuming like in the foot or ankle? Yeah, so typically it's six to eight weeks um, for those bones to heal up. Um, uh, different bones of the foot are treated in different ways. So if there's a major fracture, um, sometimes we will actually go in and fix that surgically. Um, there are other ones that we can just um, do non-weight bearing, so where they can't put any weight on the foot for six to eight weeks and allow them to heal. Um, things like toe fractures where it's not as much of a pressure area, we can have people walk on it, but um, it is typically six to eight weeks and you can't make the bones heal much faster than that, so. All right, sounds good. Um, caller asks, they have a pain on the outside of their foot. What could be causing that muscle to hurt? Sarah. Well, that's, that's kind of a uh a loaded question kind of. It a lot depends of on there's a lot of stuff <laughs> attaching over there. I'm assuming it'd probably be near the fifth metatarsal base. There's a big tendon that attaches there. Um, sometimes that fifth metatarsal base is enlarged or it's more prominent if we lose that fat pad. Um, it could just be from fat pad loss if that, that bone's more prominent. Um, ankle sprains um, can lead to tendon tears around that side that can persist. So you can say, well, I sprained it two years ago. Why is it still hurting? Yeah. Um, or it could be from flat foot. So as we yeah. talked earlier, as that flat foot develops, we start to get pain on the lateral side of the foot as well because everything's changing. And so um, it's kind of hard to isolate that, but it, it's, it's usually yes. an overuse thing or Got something it. like that. All right, well, let's talk about, uh, Color wants to know about planter's warts. What are they? How do you treat them? Yeah, so planter's warts are, it's a viral um, lesion that occurs on the foot. Um, typically, there's some little black dots within there, and then also the skin lines tend to disappear through those lesions. So um, if you do have something like that, a lot of times um, we can either freeze those areas or we can use um, other medications to try to get rid of that, that planter's warts. Um, that's another one where uh, a lot of times you'll see over-the-counter treatment options um, that include like acids and things, but I would caution people um, with the use of those because they can be a little aggressive and, and lead to bigger issues. But. All right. 
right. So, um, a caller from Madison wants to know what's the best cure for ingrown toenails? <laughs> Surgical removal. <laughs> okay. If it's a chronic problem, sometimes we do have to remove mm -hmm. part of that toenail, or if, if both sides are really ingrown um, and chronically infected, sometimes we have to take the whole toenail off. It just depends on, on the deformity of the toenail itself. Um, but the, the best cure for it is to, to, to perform what we call a partial nail avulsion where we take part of that nail out. Um, if it's an isolated, it only happens every now and again, then we can do different, you know, slant backs, just trim it without having to do anything more major. But typically, if it's a long-standing problem, um, we need to take that border out. Just get it gone. Just get it gone. All right. So, a uh, viewer said they have a small thrombosed vein in the arch of their foot. The vascular surgeon recommends podiatry. What could podiatry do for this? Hmm. I would probably recommend vascular surgery. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was wondering. I was like, hmm. Yeah, that's a little surprising. Um, yeah. Typically because that is their, their specialty is, is arteries vessels. and veins and yeah. vessels. So I'm guessing it's probably a superficial vein, mm -hmm. maybe yeah. even like a, like a varicose vein, a thrombos or something. Um, as long as it's not painful, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything with it. Um, if it is causing pain and needed some surgical treatment, then I would, I'd call the vascular surgeon and say, and hey, this is what we're go what we have. Would you recommend me do with it? Do I just need? Do we need to do this in the operating room? What what treatments? Um, but typically, if it's a vessel, um, we we tend to steer clear of those or get um, talk with the vascular surgeon and. And that's the big part about medicine. It's collaborative. No yes. one specialist takes care of everything. And it's there's nothing wrong with specialists talking to each other to saying, hey, this is what I have to offer. Do you have anything better? Yes, yes, so, I agree. <laughs> always great to get those second opinions yes. here. So um, one viewer asks, what causes the soles of the feet to feel like a thin piece of leather? Hmm. Um, so that could be a few different things. Um, we already touched on neuropathy, so it could be nerve-related, um, where they're having kind of abnormal sensations due to the changes within those nerves. Um, it could also be like a dermatological issue, where the, the skin is actually thick and there's extra buildup of, of dead skin on the surface that isn't allowing them to feel um, basically uh, the ground when they're walking or, or it feels like that soft that piece of leather. Um, so if it is something on the surface, you could always start with like a good moisturizing cream or lotion and, and try to soften that up and see if that helps a little bit. Okay. All right. Well, I know we've touched on this a little bit already, but with uh, what causes toenails, especially the big one, to get really thick? So the, that's where sometimes there is controversy mm -hmm. on, is this toenail fungus, is it traumatic nail injury? Um, for, for many people, they'll, um, like marathon runners, always having problems with, with toenails falling off mm -hmm. or becoming damaged and things. Um, as we have these repetitive injuries to the nail, the nail changes its morphology. It starts to become thick, um, it's dystrophic. Um, but also toenail fungus is <laughs> the same thing. Your mm -hmm. toenail becomes thick, it becomes discolored, um, it becomes dystrophic. So um, there's many reasons why the big toenail can can become thick, and it just depends on, you know, is it traumatic or is it fungal? And then 
if it's traumatic, is it coming from your shoe gear? Are you overly active? Is this something we can change? Um, but typically how, what I've found is once a toenail changes its morphology significantly, there, there's no way to, to get it back to where how it used to be, which is unfortunate, but that's, that's how it is with toenails. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, bunions form on the base foot joint of the big toe and can make it painful to walk or run. Avera Orthopedics helps one such patient with her bunions, which gave her the freedom to move without pain. I was like, I was having like jabbing pains up my leg and just like throbbing, tingling and stuff like that. So bunions aren't as common in younger people, but um, bunions are usually genetic. So usually they start to develop in, in younger people. They're just not as painful and bothersome usually until you get older. A lot of activities I couldn't like run a lot or just play like my family's very like play basketball a lot and I couldn't do any of those sports without having pain. So Jenica had a bunion but she also had metatarsus adductus and that's where the first and second metatarsals turn in which doesn't allow for correction of the bunion. What's unique now though is we used to have to make all those cuts by hand. So now there's jigs and instruments out there which we can uh, put onto the foot and help get the correction that we need, but it's reproducible every time to get the correction to correct the second and third metatarsals and then to correct the bunion. So I had my left one done first and then I had my right foot done this past in February. What we did is we did an osteotomy and took a wedge of bone out of her first and out of her second and third metatarsals which allowed them to correct and then we were able to fix the bunion to correct that to make it straight. What we found is actually if we can fix bunions sooner before they get arthritis down in them then we can, can correct it before and we can do different procedures that can preserve the first metatarsal joint where the bunion is at. Also that we found by correcting it back farther in the foot we found that the correction is able to last longer and the chance of recurrence is much lower. Because my foot, I think, shrunk like a few centimeters after the surgery, so now I can fit into like the shoes that I wanted to fit in more. So I can work now, like I work, and I won't have like near as much pain. Obviously, like sometimes people's feet still hurt by the end of the day, but otherwise, no like throbbing, no jabbing pains or anything. So I can do everything. Well, are there any ways to correct bunions without surgery? I, I see all the little splints that you can buy over the counter. Do they help? They, they, in my opinion, no. Um, but they can relieve some of the symptoms that, that come with bunions. Um, if it's just pain from rubbing in the shoes, some of those bunion splints and, and sleeves can help alleviate the symptoms. But um, nothing will truly correct the bunion deformity without surgery. Okay. Yep, I agree. I think um, kind of those conservative things that we can try for people that aren't looking for surgery is um, wide toe box shoes um, or even like a softer material through the toe box to um, allow space for that deformity. And then I agree with Dr. Jones that um, those corrective devices you see when you're scrolling on Instagram are probably not gonna really do any long-term benefit, but um, we will use cushioning devices to, to relieve some of that pressure there. All right, well, a caller asks, says, I get shin splints a lot. How do I prevent this? 
So shin splints um, or medial tibial stress syndrome is another term that we could throw out there. Always a fun uh, doctor term. <laughs> it's, it's basically an inflammation of, of the shin bone from the muscles um, which causes pain. We see it more in runners or in young adolescent children. Um, to prevent it, stretch, stretch, stretch. Lots and lots of stretching. Ice and then shoe gear. I think I think that's where orthotics and things come into play. Is is as they're running, are are the ground reactive forces going through the proper channels up the leg? Is it putting too much strain on, on these muscle bellies? Um, are they drinking enough water? Is it an electrolyte thing? And so um, that's kind of typically how I treat shin splints is shoe gear modification, stretching, stretching, um, and plenty of fluids. All right, well, another email says, my son plays sports and gets athlete's foot a lot. How can we prevent this? Yeah, athlete's That's foot awful. is a number, <laughs> another very common one that we see in clinic. Um, a lot of people will come in for something else and then I actually notice that they have athlete's foot. So we end up treating a lot of it that is less symptomatic too. Um, but a good way to prevent it is, is showers in the, or sandals in the shower and things like that where you're gonna be in a group area. Um, there are over-the-counter medications that, that work pretty well, those antifungal um, creams and things like that. You can also um, make sure that the shoe gear is really dried in between uses. So pull out the insoles. Um, you can use antifungal spray powders, things like that. Um, if those things are ineffective, then come see us and we have some prescription options too that can tackle those more difficult cases. Right. So I'm noticing a recurring theme about having the right shoes. Yes. Proper <laughs> shoes are very important for lots of things here. Lots of things, especially, and it's all individualized too. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say this is the brand you need to go get and that's where it becomes difficult when people say, hey, what brands do you recommend? Mm. <sighs> Tell me about yourself, yes. <laughs> and then we'll find what, what works best for you. Yeah, all right. Well, here's a fun one. What is sesamoiditis? I know it does not open the cave of wonders, so. So, <laughs> we see this quite often. Um, sesamoids are, are bones within a tendon or a ligament sheath in, in our feet. We have several different sesamoids. So sesamoiditis is inflammation of that bone. So, so to figure out, um, why the bone is hurting to begin with? Um, was there a trauma? Is it um, an abnormal pull of a, a tendon on that bone? You know, why, why are you having this inflammation of this bone? Um, a lot of times we get an MRI to look at. That's how we, f we figure out that it's, it's sesamoiditis. We can, we can push on that bone and it hurts, so then we want an MRI to see why is that bone inflamed? Are the ligaments around it damaged? Is the bone damaged? Um, usually a, an oral steroid, and uh, uh, prescription NSAID, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, can help cure that. Um, in some cases, we actually have to remove that bone um, because it, it's so inflamed that it becomes destructive to that bone. The bone starts to, to die or, or uh, fractures, and so okay. um, it, can be, it, can, it can be pretty painful. It's very uh, sure. debilitating to some people. Yeah. All right, well, from Facebook, what can be done to relieve pain with tenosynovitis? 
Um, Got lots a, of good that's work. That's a good one, yeah. So um, that could be a number of different tendons in the, the foot and ankle. And um, so knowing which one it is would, would definitely help narrow down the treatment. But typically for that, we're going to try to control the inflammation with anti-inflammatories. And then that's another one where physical therapy can be very beneficial um, to try to work on strengthening, stretching out that muscle so it's not pulling so hard on the tendon. Um, and then they also have different techniques that they can do locally to reduce that inflammation as well. I think uh, with, with some of those, depending on the severity, we, we say don't, if it's, if it's this bad, we need to not use it. Mm -hmm. So you need to be non-weight bearing for four weeks, let this tendon start to heal, then we transition you to a cam boot and physical therapy. So sometimes tenosynovitis can last several months. It can be, it can be another debilitating thing as well. All right. Well, what is capsulitis? I've got all the itises here. All the itises. Inflammation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah inflammation. Yeah, inflammation. yeah so that's um, when one of the joint capsules um, okay. of the, so if you think of the base of the toes, they have that, that joint there, and there's a joint capsule surrounding that. Mm. Um, and it's when that area gets inflamed for a number of different reasons. Um, it could be overloading. Um, it could be hammer toes where we're stretching out the, the bottom of that that capsule. Um, so again, uh, treatments vary for that, um, but we do want to try to get down that inflammation. Um, we have medications or injections we can use. Um, sometimes it's offloading where we try to get the pressure off of the bottom of that joint to kind of reduce that, that inflammatory response. All right. Well, a viewer on Facebook wants to know, we, we talked about neuromas and neuropathy. How are they different? They, they kind of sound the same, but so neuroma is an isolated nerve. A single nerve has a problem with it where neuropathy affects all the nerves, all the different pathways of the nerves, the pain receptors, pressure, touch, um, where, the, where neuroma is a single nerve that's injured or inflamed um, and just causes pain. It doesn't affect anything else around it. Okay, so what treatments would you do for neuropathy? Um, so neuropathy is a tough one. Um, unfortunately, like Dr. Jones mentioned earlier, once that damage is done, um, it's kind of a done deal. Um, but we do have ways that we can help to reduce the pain if there's pain associated with neuropathy. So there's certain medications. Um, like he mentioned, gait training to make sure people still have good balance. Um, but unfortunately right now we don't have a way to cure or reverse neuropathy. Okay, sounds good. Uh, caller asks, why do feet cramp when they're elevated? So that's could be a number of things. It would be depending on their medical history and are they a smoker, non-smoker, things like that. It raises a concern for uh, is, is there a vascular disease, is that why? Because we know if we have limited blood flow to the foot when we elevate them, we, we don't have that blood flowing out there so then the muscles start to, to, to contract and so when they put their feet down it feels instantly better and so that's you know is this a vascular component that's where at the beginning with the cold feet is this hard a vascular thing it's hard to know so all right well this is an interesting question a caller was out wearing hip waders while hunting and the balls of their feet became very sore afterwards since then they've had the same pain after walking on hard surfaces for a long time or after exertion what could be causing this and how can they help it get better? 
Yeah, it sounds like it's probably an overloading issue or um, essentially there might not have been enough cushioning in those that certain um, those waders where there's um, not the adequate cushioning they're used to. Um, and then that can cause symptoms like that capsulitis we talked about um, where that joint gets inflamed and then it's tough to get that inflammation under control. Um, so you could always try just just offloading that, that joint structure or um, also some over-the-counter anti-inflammatories. Good supportive shoe gear um, with plenty of cushioning through the forefoot is also beneficial. Perfect. All right. Well, caller asked, does applying tea tree oil to toenails get rid of the fungus? It's, it's a very common thing we've heard over... The <laughs> There's a lot of things we can put on toenails. We, we can put tea tree oil, we can put Vicks Vapor Rub, we can put Vaseline, there's um, antifungal vinegar. vinegar. Um, does it work, does it cure it? Uh, I, I don't know, <laughs> that's, that's one of those. How patient are you? <laughs> yes, um, because it, the fungus is actually underneath the nail. Yeah. And so to put stuff on top of the nail, it has to penetrate down through that nail plate to the underside to actually get to the fungus. So is any of it actually getting to the, the fungus? So sometimes with, with nail fungus, we do the oral antifungals um, to try to treat that skin. Um, so it, tea tree oil isn't gonna hurt your feet. It's not gonna hurt okay. the nails, but it may not make your toenails different. All right, well in our last, uh, two, three minutes that we have here. What is something viewers can do to help care for their feet properly? That's a great question. Um, I think we touched on it earlier with good supportive shoes and, and inserts. Um, that's definitely an important one. Um, managing things early too. If you notice a change or, or something is painful or bothering you, um, a lot of times with feet, it's better to be seen sooner than later. Um, and then we have that advantage of, of catching things early and implementing the right treatments. Um, so. Hygiene is a big thing as well, yeah. you know, checking our in between our toes, you know, as we get older, it gets hard to reach things and see things, and so trying to see the bottom of our feet every day and making sure everything looks normal there. Um, hygiene's a, a big factor in developing uh, athlete's foot and things like that. All right, well, here's a quick question. Um, family member has tendinosis. Is that different than tendinitis? So tendinosis is thickening of the tendon, okay. where tendinitis is inflammation of the tendon. Now they go hand in hand most of the time when you have tendinosis, you have tendinitis. Sometimes when you read MRI reports, it'll say um, tendinosis or thickening. They, they typically don't say, they'll say tenosynovitis, they'll say different things, which all comes down to the tendon's in, inflamed, it's thick, it's angry. Okay. There's also a, um, Kind of the longer you have tendonitis, the more likely you are to develop tendinosis. So it, it, there's some um, part of that that's more related to how chronic the condition is, um, and when there's actual like degenerative changes or enlarging of that tendon, the longer you have like a tendonitis or a condition like that. All right, so a lot of different things with very overlapping names, yes. and you guys keep track of it all with. <laughs> It's, I'm, yes, I'm in yes. awe of what you guys do. So, well, thank you so much. We had a lot of questions from viewers because there's a lot going on in your feet, and 
and you need them or you don't have a foot to stand on. So. <laughs> All right. Well, the winner of our prize tonight is Christy. Thank you, Christy, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. On Call with the Prairie Doc has been a leading source of health education for 21 seasons. Join us as we continue to provide health information based on science built on trust. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc Library today. Winter weather has finally arrived this year. Getting outside for some activity, even in the winter, is great for your overall health. However, snow, ice, and cold can turn a stroll in the park into an obstacle course. Having proper footwear is not only important for the warmth, but also for the well-being of your feet. Choosing the correct boots for the elements can mean the difference between enjoying the outdoors and needing an urgent care visit. What makes good footwear for enjoying the outdoors safely? Good traction is essential for walking outside in slippery conditions. If your shoes do not have good traction, you can buy ice cleat attachments. However, you likely already have something in your home that will increase traction on icy sidewalks. The New Zealand Medical Journal published a study showing a significant improvement in traction by placing socks over normal footwear. In the study, those who wore socks over their shoes found walking on a hillside footpath less slippery and had increased confidence. You may look silly, but you are less likely to slip. Having proper fitting shoes is also important when going outside. Shoes that are too tight could decrease circulation, leading to swelling of the feet and ankles. If they are too small, they can lead to ingrown toenails, corns, and calluses. Conversely, boots that are too loose could cause friction, leading to blisters. Ill-fitting shoes that have poor arch support could cause shin pain when walking. One might also have a higher risk for jamming a toe or spraining an ankle due to tripping or falling caused by improper fitting shoes. Additionally, having shoes that keep your feet warm and dry is crucial in the winter. Frostbite occurs commonly in extremities such as fingers, toes, and the nose. The first signs of frostbite are a pins and needles sensation, throbbing, or an aching in the affected areas. Trench foot has similar symptoms, but is caused by feet being in a wet environment for a prolonged period of time. Wet socks and wet boots can lead to both of these injuries. It is important to dry out boots between uses and have clean, dry socks when going outside in the winter. Having boots with waterproofing and insulation will also help prevent these issues from occurring. Now that you know what boots are made for walking, and whether you are walking on sunshine, walking in Memphis, or just want to walk the line, the proper winter boots will keep you upright and safe. We would not want you to fall and have anyone else walk all over you. So stay safe, get outside, and stay healthy out there.
Well, thank you so much to both of my guests here tonight, Dr. Prusa and Dr. Jones, for volunteering your time to help us learn more about podiatry. I think I even learned a thing or two tonight. So if you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Health Information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Your primary care physician is your trusted go-to doctor for everything from annual checkups to ear and sinus infections. But sometimes you need a specialist. Fundamental functions, ear, nose, and throat issues, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. My name is Jennifer May. I'm a rheumatologist in Rapid City, South Dakota. I got involved maybe around 2005. That's when I first started practicing in Rapid City and my former partner introduced me to Rick and actually got me on the on-call show. I think we did a story on gout. Um, and that was my first introduction to Rick and the Prairie Doc sort of concept. And it's a great resource for information. We have a lot of people that live in remote places. They maybe don't have a lot of good access. And we know that there's a lot of misinformation in terms of health information that you can get online. And having a reliable source for people to go to with people they recognize that they might know on the programming, I think is really important. Well, I think having anything that isn't tied to an agenda is really important. And so having access to information that you can refer your patient to that you know they're not going to get fees or get their data sold is really important. I think if people want high quality programming from local people, local experts that supports your community, supporting Prairie Doc is the way to go. For more information or to donate, please go to www.prairiedoc.org or mail your donation to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Out here, the day starts early and ends late. You don't love this land because it's easy. You love it because it's home. At Avera, we're built for rural healthcare. We're bringing quality, innovation, and advanced technology to your vibrant communities. Care when and where you need it. That's how Avera moves health forward. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Ophthalmology Limited, 
Avera Medical Group Brookings, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Monument Health, Dakota Dermatology, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, South Dakota American College of Physicians, Cool Beans Coffee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, and Swiftel Communications.